Hello and welcome to another edition of Greening the News, the podcast from IEMA, the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment. My name is Sarah Mukherjee. I'm IEMA's Chief Executive and your host for this podcast. IEMA is a membership organisation for more than 18,000 environment and sustainability professionals in more than 115 countries around the world. We provide training and development pathways, professional support, peer-to-peer learning and networking to help our members develop the skills they need and to boost their careers. We also develop policy to make the change that our members wish to see at national, regional and international level. This month, we'll be talking about a subject that is affecting many people around the world, particularly at this time of year in the global north, where winter is only just beginning to give way to spring. And that, of course, is energy prices. According to The Economist magazine, in September 2020, it cost about $139 to buy enough energy to heat a home for a year. A year later, September 2021, and that price had increased by almost 700%. Since then, prices have continued to soar. As with so many crises, the reasons for why we are where we are are many and complex. I well remember that as a BBC environment correspondent almost a decade ago, I compiled many reports about the lack of large-scale energy storage in the UK and the slow renewal rate of energy generation capability compared with the speed at which it was ageing. Those concerns have been overtaken by a new set of variables – each of which have added a thread from which the current crisis is woven. A lack of wind for renewable generation, a scramble for energy as industry restarts after 18 months of COVID-related dormancy, unseasonably cold weather in some parts of the world, all elements that have come together at the wrong time to mean that millions of people across the world could be facing decisions over whether to heat or eat over the next few months. So how do we get out of this situation? Some politicians and commentators have suggested that governments should ditch green tariffs, which were set up to help spread the cost of investment in renewables in order to reduce the burden on hard-pressed energy bill payers. Is that sensible or simply exchanging one problem with another? Well, in a moment, I'll be joined by two experts who will help us navigate our way through this most complex of issues. But first, with his roundup of environmental news, here's Andre Farah. United Nations Migration Week is being used to highlight the potential scale of human migration caused by the climate emergency. This is already happening, and a report spotlights South America as displaced people head for the cities. London's Mayor Sadiq Khan chairs a group of around 100 cities focused on tackling the climate emergency and the human impact of the displacement of populations due to the climate crisis. He highlights the need to tackle the climate crisis in order to avoid the worst impacts. In addition, he sees the need, backed by government, to double London's green economy by 2030. The challenge of the, of the Mayor of London's ambitions is put in context by findings of the Office for National Statistics that perhaps surprisingly find that there's been no change in the number of jobs in the low carbon and renewable energy sector between 2012 and 2020. The stagnation in UK jobs is in contrast to the overall growth in the green economy, including offshore wind. 
highlighting the scale of manufacturing of components and their import from foreign manufacturers. The Royal Institute of British Architects have released research showing that 12% of the carbon emissions from England's housing comes from the 3.3 million homes built between the world wars that have not been retrofitted with effective insulation. Reba argue for a fabric-first retrofit, installing insulation and heat pumps. They set out a range of funding measures that could both reduce fuel costs for millions of families and cut emission towards the government's net zero targets. According to the report, a higher percentage of households living in housing stock built in the interwar year years are suffering from fuel poverty. It's a finite resource and underpins life on land, but it is a Cinderella of the environment world. Our soils are seen through a narrow lens of agriculture, and there are protections for the best and most versatile soils for growing our crops. But new guidance published by IEMA puts soils into focus for environmental impact assessment practitioners, which goes beyond simply valuing soil for its agricultural potential. Soils play a critical role in regulating water flows, sequestering carbon and holding it in the ground, and is central to biodiversity and ecological processes. Healthy soils support life. AIMA welcome the increasing political recognition of the importance of soil conservation and look forward to contributing to the forthcoming consultation draft of the government's Soil Health Action Plan. Thanks, Andre. So I'm delighted to be joined by two experts in the field of energy and energy expenditure. Richard Lupo is a chartered environmentalist and full member of IEMA. He's had a lifelong interest in sustainability issues and has carried out more than 50 full sustainability assessments of social landlords using the SHIFT standard. Adam Scorer is CEO of National Energy Action, the national fuel poverty charity. He has an extensive history in the consumer movement, working, amongst others, for which Energy Watch, Consumer Focus and Citizens Advice. For much of that time, he's had a particular focus on energy policy, consumer vulnerability and fuel poverty. Richard and Adam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and I wonder, perhaps, Adam, if I could start with you. I mean, this question uh, of heat and eat, there's, there are so many people now who are really beginning on all parts of the kind of fuel scale and the economic scale are really beginning to feel the pinch now. How have we got to where we are now? Well, of course, we've had this problem for quite some time that we've had about in the UK in September 2021, we had about 4 million households who are in what we call fuel poverty. That's spending about 10% of their income just to manage a decent level of of heat and, and power. So it's a long standing issue. What we've got now with the challenge in the UK of energy prices skyrocketing is that that situation has become much more serious for those people who'd already been in fuel poverty. But of course, we're dragging about 2 million more households. Uh, into that, those sorts of equations. And to be honest, for many of them, it's no longer that choice between can I heat my home adequately or can I feed my children adequately? You can't do either adequately. So what's often been a, a kind of a niche issue about energy affordability is transitioned over to a much broader challenge of cost of living and just basically a question of what's a decent life and what should people's expectations be in the UK. So it's got deeper, it's got broader, and I'm hoping that this is the moment when we focus on it sufficiently and understand what the long-term solutions may be. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say niche issue because, uh, as I said, 
a little earlier on. I mean, I remember doing this as a journalist a decade ago, and you know, you talk to people who are probably in the kind of you know wonkish end of energy policy, and they could all see this coming down the track. I mean, they might not have seen where it was going to come, but they knew there was a crisis coming. So why haven't we listened until now? I mean, that's a really good point because, uh, as you said in the introduction, I've got a long experience in consumer advocacy, but huge numbers of challenges, cost of living to low-income consumers in particular. But we've seen this coming since since the summer of 2021. We didn't know the exact scale of it, but we knew it was coming. We knew when it was going to hit. And because in the UK we have the price cap, so that's a, a, a mechanism for controlling the unit cost of energy for most people, we knew it was going to affect 22 million people. And we seem to have left it to the very last minute, not even to make a proper decision. So the, the foresight has been there. The understanding of the scale has been there. The way it will devastate the budgets of low-income households has been known, and yet we still seem to be incapable of coming up with a proportionate response, of going deep and targeted support, which I think is what is needed, rather than broad and shallow, which is what we've got. So I wish I could say why, having had that foresight, we haven't come up with a proportionate response. But you know, millions of people are going to have to cope with that lack of proportionality. Mm. And Richard, it'd be a good place to to bring you into the conversation. First of all, I must ask, for those who don't know, what is the shift standard? Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's a standard um, that allows housing associations to measure and put figures to their um, sustainability. So it's not just the energy, but all aspects of sustainability, including adapting to climate change. Brilliant. Thank you. So this point about we've seen it coming, I mean, obviously, you've got a huge amount of, of experience working with people delivering social housing. And Anybody who'd read the papers on a regular basis for the last decade or so knew there was a a pinch point that was going to come. Why do you think we haven't done more than we have done over the last few years in order to ensure, shore up some energy sustainability and security? Well, I started in the social housing about 2008 and the the signs of something good happening there with building standards changing. But then um, the credit crunch happened and everything was all about the economy um, all governing was about getting the economy going getting money into people's pockets but the, the people's pockets that the policies were aimed at were already uh, had plenty of money and it was not aimed at uh, filtering down to everybody so i think i think the the the, the core issue is our being uh, an obsession to govern for a good economy rather than for the well-being of everybody so uh, and i think there's a lot of uh, well we all know the people that aren't uh, benefiting from the, the burgeoning economy and you know back in 2008 everybody was talking about fuel security that was on slides that was on documents that it, it, it's just a total unknown and um, it wasn't an unknown and yeah, why why was it ignored? And to Adam's point, I mean, and it's interesting because there are com- parallel conversations going on in food policy as well around actually, you know, if you want people to eat better, you have to pay them more. Uh, Adam was saying, you know, this is just an, another thread of, of an overall cost of living crisis. I and mean, Richard, do you think that there's there may be a, more of a concentration now on the the inequality that you you've just been talking about? Well, I'm ever the optimist. I, I hope so. I hope so. I, I see things happening. And um, one of the big things that I think is happening in, in the world 
that may be a game changer, but maybe other people have got views is uh, the banks. Ever since the credit crunch, when we had to bail out the banks for what? What were they doing? Gambling with other people's money and lining their own pockets and then taxpayers had to bail them out. I think they've been a bit of a resurgence now and they realise that they, if they're going to get bailed out again, they have to demonstrate that they're doing good for the world. And so what we're seeing is uh, the rise of this so-called ESG investments, environmental, social and governance. And, you know, that seems here to stay. It seems to be certainly motivating a lot of uh, good work in, in our sector. So, yes, I'm ever the optimist. I mean, Adam, that's a good point that Richard makes, isn't it? This, I, I mean, we've seen certainly in the sector. If you talk to our members, there's there's lots and lots of people who are you know have more work than they can manage at the moment in, in sustainability consultancies. Business is very aware of sustainability, but to your point, there's a parallel necessarily w- with the people who are really, as you said, it's not just heat or eat, it's now how how well do I survive in the next six, six or seven months? Uh, yes, that's right. You have to put it in the context. Obviously, the the, 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 the rapidity of the, of the transition from kind of fossil fuel power generation to renewable sources has been astonishing in the uh, in, in the UK. And I think that's enabled people just to the success of that. And that obviously has been one of the most exciting moments in, in energy policy that, that we've had. But it kind of blinds you to a couple of other things. One, that even though we have had that scale of transition and the, and the exposure to energy inputs has, has been reduced, nonetheless, because 83% of households heat their home with gas in the, in the UK, you, that particular segment is very exposed to global commodity markets. And at the same time, we've had probably a wrong-headed approach to what a good competitive energy supply market looks like, which is just numbers of competitors, intensity of competition, as opposed to good uh, outcomes. So I think, you know, you're, you're only ever a global commodity crisis away from from kind of exceeding numbers of, uh, of fuel poor. It shouldn't blind us to the positives. The big thing I think that we've missed sight of um, in, in in the interaction between what our, if you want, what the UK strategic energy policy should be, and the impact on on homes, is the fact that we have some of the worst housing stock in Europe. It loses heat faster than almost anywhere else. And I was going to say we have a stop start approach to energy efficiency. We have a uh, we just kind of put the heels in every single time. We we just needed to have, and this is the challenge I think, decades long projections and and targets and programs to increase the levels of energy efficiency, especially in the homes of people who are just never going to be able to afford to do it for themselves. And I think that's that's the big long term, whatever the short term measures to try and make sure that people's budgets don't get completely trashed by energy price rises. The long term solution for domestic heating has to be to insulate people from punitive commodity cost rises by insulating their homes, getting up at least to the basic standard of other Northern European um, countries. I think that's the area where the, the eye has been taken off the ball for way too long. And that's, again, I mean, it's kind of parallel conversation, isn't it? Because we've been around that track before. In fact, we've had government initiatives looking at trying to uh, ensure that there was insulation. We had the Green Deal that was talked about. Then we had uh, net zero homes, uh, plans for that and regulations for that. And yet, you know, we are still 
where we are. So, um, Adam, perhaps I could ask you first: what? Why do you think we've we're in this situation that we, you know, everybody can identify and articulate the issue who's involved in this? It's just we don't seem to be making a much progress at all in terms of insulation and retrofitting an old and leaky housing stock. Yes, I, mean, I think we, we continually make some basic policy errors. Um, first, because something is a good idea and your policy idea requires consumers to act, that they will act in the way that as agents for your policy rather than as human beings with lots of other things going on and lots of other kind of challenges. Um, latterly, especially in, in the situation of the pandemic, we've come up with, with energy efficiency schemes as means to short-term economic stimulus. They don't understand what the market's like. They don't understand the types of challenges it is in getting into people's homes. So we just, we just always start from the wrong foot. Um, and, and financial uh, instruments and incentives which haven't been well thought through and actually are not great incentives for people to take it forward. I think the big challenge that we've lost over the past decade, if I'm honest, is what's the role of the state? What is the role of, of governments in trying to accelerate, in some ways, make markets for energy efficiency? How you use low-cost kind of borrowing and, and, and lending in order to pump prime parts of the market that otherwise wouldn't catch on. So I see no signs of it, to be honest. But I think what we do need is government to say, especially for people who, you know, the idea of long-term payback on capital investment to optimize your asset is just a foreign language because they can't afford it. The role of the state has to be to, to identify and address that housing stock first through government money uh, in order that you pump prime and drive and accelerate energy efficiency and at the same time build supply chains and deal with the worst cases um, first. But we just seem to be continually trying to find ways of doing energy efficiency programs that fly in the face of what we all know is required to make those markets work. Uh, Richard, I heard a murmur of approval uh, from you there uh, in terms of um, state and state intervention. Um, is I mean, obviously, you work with social housing authorities, with, with the sort of people who are trying to implement this. Uh, and do you think that's it? We've, we've lost, we've kind of lost our focus as a nation on where the priorities should be. Oh, most definitely. I go back to what I was saying, you know, that it's all about the way we're being governed or had been governed is all about uh, the economy and not thinking about the well-being of everybody in that economy. And yeah, the, the stop start, uh, yeah, I recognise that with the feed-in tariffs, that stopped and started and that was going the, the right way. And then all the different grants and then there's a lack of legislation in my sector to say, yes, you must get this to the uh, right level. It's all done on a kind of a goodwill premise. Uh, I'm sorry to cut in, but why do you think that is? I mean, because as, as we said, we've all articulated the problem. We're now in kind of crisis mode. So why has so much of it been, as you said, based on goodwill? I, well, thankfully, my sector, the, the people, the, the chief execs and stuff are very concerned about fuel poverty and they really do want to sort of help people. And, you know, you, there's real horror stories about people coming up and they notice that the uh, number of empty homes increases in the, in the colder months because of uh, winter deaths. So it, it's a, you know, it's a real thing. And it's, it's just a steer by government up until the time, you know, we, we all saw the uh, the programs about what was it called benefit street uh, demonizing people who haven't got the money you know and i still think that the government have been governing 
to create wealth, but that wealth is not being filtered down to the people who need it. There has been these sort of intermittent attempts at uh, insulation funding and grant funding and everything, but until that all gets organised, it's it's really quite a difficult thing to do. And I take um, Adam was saying about the, um, the 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 cost benefit analysis, for example, the our the landlords they will have to invest, you know, significant amounts of money, billions of pounds of money, to get the houses up to um, scratch. The resident is going to benefit because their bills are going to go down. The NHS is going to benefit because their bills will go down because of all the uh, fuel poverty related illnesses. Um, there's loads of other people are going to benefit because the uh, the contribution to uh, the reduction in carbon emissions is reducing flood risk and overheating risk and all the rest of it. The, in that formula, the only person or the only entity not benefited is the landlord themselves who shelled out the billions in the first place. That's a really good point. And as a question after that, so are there two or three things that you think um, a government could do to make the biggest difference? I mean, we, when we're, in most jobs, you can see usually there's two or three things you think that that could kind of solve half the problems that we're talking about. Is it is it the same um, in your specialty? Oh, yeah. The first thing at the minute is just change the law so that every house that's built now is the top it can be, is a net zero house. Why on earth are we building houses with gas boilers in now with poor insulation, uh, poorly checked at what you, you even with the best will in the world, you design something and nobody checks it to say that the quality of the build afterwards was really good. Um, that we've got 28 years till 2050. You had 28 years of building new homes to uh, EPCA rated or net zero standard, and uh, that will make a massive difference. So that's the first thing. And then yeah, addressing the, the investment uh, in equity. So the landlords, they're paying, but they're not getting anything back. There's There are structures around that could allow them to uh, gain more money once they've made the houses that much more uh, energy efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, been a fantastic conversation. Our time is almost up in the last few minutes. Can I just ask you about this green tariff thing? Because we've heard a lot from, I mean, not just in the UK, but in other parts of, of Europe as well, of uh, certain politicians or commentators saying, ditch the green tariffs, get rid of them, give people more money in their pocket, and we can worry about that later. Do you think that's a false economy? Um, I, I do um, in, in most cases. I think there are some some legacy uh, green policy costs that aren't required on the bill anymore. You can get rid of some of those. But a lot of the policy costs on UK bills relate to the energy efficiency and fuel poor schemes that are going to help us insulate our homes over the long term. So I think there's some kind of proxy wars going on here about um, people using the, and I, I, I get quite angry about it, using the plight of the fuel poor to argue for various low tax economies or to get rid of, of green crap. What's really needed, of course, is focus on the benefits, not just on the costs. Let's get decades long programs rather than things that stop start within a parliament within the lifetime of a parliament, build local capability so you can have communities owning this and understanding what's right in their particular areas for their particular um, citizens um, and deal with the worst first. You know, you can't, the government can't afford it for every single house across the UK. Of course it can't. It can do it for those people in the worst conditions and on the lowest incomes. That point uh, you made about uh, you know, people using this as a as a proxy for other conversations, you do wonder, don't you, why this 
it, and maybe maybe this will change, but in previous elections, energy does not come to the top of people's issues when they're polled about the things that worry them most. I mean, might that change? And do you think that might change the political debate as a result? I think the political debate is is turning. I mean, there's. I think the the what was regarded as a consensus around net zero is kind of bit, a little bit fragile. Although we overstate kind of uh, the extent to what that that is the case. I, I certainly think so if you look at some of the positives of a crisis, you should always take the opportunities from a crisis as well as identify the negatives. People will be more focused, I think, on how you insulate yourself and the economy and society from commodity costs from fossil fuel commodity costs, and that should drive some uh, recognition uh, of it. I think what we're at the moment, of course, is that energy costs, energy is a political market, always has been, and I think always will be because of the consequences if you can't afford it, but because it's supercharging the cost of living crisis in the UK, the biggest single element, the thing that hits affects everybody and affects some people really dramatically, I think it has got greater salience and should always take advantage of a crisis to make sure that we get some long-term strategic thinking um, as well as the short-term political positioning that inevitably goes on. Um, before I asked you the question I asked uh, Richard about what you know, what are the two or three things you think would make the biggest difference, I guess you know, we should talk because it's so much in the headlines at the moment about Russia and the Ukraine and uh, some people, some commentators are saying there's a bigger energy crisis being driven by that as well. I mean, do you think that uh, energy bills are going to head up, just head in one direction, potentially? Yes, yes, over the short term, yes. So one of the problems we've also got is um, a, a certain amount of fingers crossed hoping this goes away um, and then assuming it's a blip and it can be managed as a blip and you take the most optimistic kind of view about where commodity prices, wholesale prices uh, go. Whether whether it's the Russia and the Ukraine, whether it's continued economic development in China and the Far East, taking the LNG resources, whatever it will be, if we treat this as a blip, which you just need to have some gestural awareness of rather than address it seriously, you know, we'll just kind of continue to commit the same sins. I think we we have to assume that high cost, that we, we might not have peaked when we get to April. There may be more to come in October. I think that's what everyone's assuming. But we have to treat it as a long-term challenge to our uh, energy policy around energy efficiency, around support to low-income households, and about the, the pace at which we introduce low-carbon heating technologies into domestic uh, homes, because so long as we have 83% of homes using gas, um, so long as we have the, the worst housing stock uh, in Europe, and as long as we are exposed to significant levels of import on our gas costs, we, we're just going to come back to this time and time again. So, I mean, I think you've very neatly set out the two or three things you think would make the biggest difference, um, which is retrofitting housing stock and uh, having a, a much longer term view of energy security and and strategy is there is there anything else you think that would be a, a relatively quick win i, I think there is a, we, we talk about the long terms there is a, an outstandingly urgent uh, and desperate situation in the uk which is that the cost of heating your home when we get to april will have doubled over 18 months um, the provision for our key uh, winter rebate scheme, the warm home discount, is going to go up £10. So there is still outstanding for government to use its own energy tax windfall, which is had from VAT and from carbon taxation, to fund much more dramatic support to people who, as we started the conversation with, are going to be in desperate situations now 
and next winter as well. So there's still the urgency of getting more money into people into the pockets of the, of the poorest households or getting more money off their bills. Until we get through that, it casts a very long shadow, this challenge. Until we get through that, I don't think we'll have the space, the headspace, to think about what the long-term strategic choices should be. Um, usually at the end of our podcast, I ask our guests whether they are optimistic or pessimistic, because often we're talking in the context of climate change and climate change mitigation and adaptation. It's a slightly different conversation today, but I, I guess I'll, I'll still ask the question um, and start with Richard. Are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future? Uh, I'm uh, lo- I'm optimistic for the long term future. I think in the short term, uh, I haven't seen any action about um, relieving people's bills. But in the in the long term, I'm optimistic. Brilliant, thank you. And Adam, I'm, I'm the same position. Long term, I think there's huge reasons to be optimistic. I'm just full of dread for the next year, to be honest. Yes, and um, I think anybody who has listened to this fascinating conversation over the last uh, half hour or so would very much agree with both of you. And thank you so much, Adam and Richard, for your thoughts and for your your analysis, fascinating analysis of the situation, which is, both of you said, is not by any stretch of the imagination, Rosie, in the next uh, few months and years. And we mu- our thoughts must be with those people who are already really struggling to uh, keep food on the table and to keep their houses anything like warm. Adam, Richard, thank you so much. Uh, Please do join us again next month for another Greening the News. I'm Sarah Mukherjee. From us to you, goodbye for now. Goodbye.